Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Chris Rowe, our good friend from Rowe Hunting Resources on the line. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you taking a break from skiing, I take it? Yeah, you know, I'm, um, I'm in my place right now looking out the window and the, the snowflakes keep getting bigger and bigger. They kind of went from just little, little un, or I guess it would be popcorn that isn't popped yet, you know, just like little seeds, to now it almost looks like dime-sized flakes. And I even see some that are starting to look almost like a quarter-sized flake out there. So they're getting bigger, and um, we're supposed to have, you know, 80 90% chance of snow tonight. And um, I know this, this part of Colorado, as well as the rest of Colorado, really needs it, um, not only, you know, just for the skiers, but for, you know, wildfires for our wildlife and everything else. Um, so it's it's exciting to see a storm come in, but uh, Colorado's sure looking a little uh, little rough in their overall snowpack. Yeah, you and Caleb, we're the same boat out here. I've I've got my fingernails chewed down to the nubs sitting here watching the watching the weather radar. We're supposed to be getting some rain coming in tonight and into the morning and man. Uh, Lord willing, fingers crossed, we get up to about three quarters of an inch to eight tenths or so of an inch of rain, and man, do we need it! So yeah, bring on the rain, so in, bring on the snow. In in Kansas, um, is, is all of Kansas in a pretty widespread drought, or just the area of Kansas that you're in? Uh, not all of the state, no, but very, very much so where I am. Yeah, there. I just was talking with a extension buddy of mine and he's got some farmers that he works with and yeah there's there's a bunch of guys out here that they have not had measurable moisture a, going on six months 160 some days now so it's been almost That's six unreal. months before yeah no i mean that we're talking about measure anything measurable moisture nothing so and this okay now typically this is our dry period we we normally get monsoon moisture our may through september is our wetter year or wetter months but you know if we're going to stay in this la nina pattern we typically are very dry during the la nina type pattern we'll see we 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 can be in in for a hurt this year or maybe things will turn around i don't know fingers crossed we'll see I want to talk to you on this episode about Colorado and about elk hunting and, you know, the draw units and the over-the-counter units, but I want to take a, a second here and ask you about, um, I, I noticed on your Instagram page that you were out on the Genesis out there um, getting a bunch of your food plots planted. How much of that was that you saw on the forecast, this storm coming, and how much of that was just a fact of this is normally the time that you do it? Uh, no, that was all about the fact that we had this moisture coming. The, the stuff that I was planting the other day are all our cool season. Uh, so it was basically wheat with clover. Uh, lat normally I plant that in the fall or late summer, early fall, and it comes up, turns green, stays green over winter, and then it freshens back up and pops uh, in the spring when the soil moisture, well, when the soil warms up enough and it has adequate moisture. So... I planted that stuff last fall, but since it was so dry last fall, it really didn't come up great. It did. It, it came up, but it was just kind of bleh. So as soon as I saw that we were supposed to get some moisture, I figured, you know what, I've got a bunch of extra seeds still with some fertilizer. 
I just went out there and I just drilled the bejeebas out of all these uh, all the plots that I did last fall just to put a bunch of seed in the soil and hopefully take advantage of this moisture that we're going to hopefully get so that way I mean for our turkeys this spring at least we get a very you know a, a severe or not severe significant pop of good green vegetation high protein forage for those hens getting ready to lay eggs hopefully give them the boost that they need so that we have some better nest success this year so what's your situation out there right now with the drought um you are birds around um is it looking bleak is it looking good what you know what kind of forecast or what are you seeing out there well, there's definitely birds around. I think what people are going to see, if they again, I'm northwestern part of the state. Now, the eastern part of the state is completely different because they got a lot of good rain uh, this past year. For the northwest part of the state up here, we kind of got hit two years in a row with bad weather right about the time when the pulse should have been hatching. So we had we took a hit on our pulse survival after they hatch after they came out of the nest. And then the other thing is, is because the fur prices have gone right straight through the toilet, no one is out here trapping, and very few people are out there predator hunting. So our raccoon population is through the roof, our skunk population is through the roof, our opossum population is through the roof, and they, I, I have literally these past two years have seen more raided, busted up nests than I can probably count on both hands, you know, from years in the future. Um, so if people come out to the northwest part of the state, they're going to, most likely they are going to see that there are fewer birds than what they are used to seeing. That doesn't mean that the birds aren't there. They're just, there are pockets of birds and not these gigantic flocks that we're normally seeing. The other thing, too, people would need to keep in mind, wheat prices from a commodity standpoint are like I said, in the toilet. You really can't make money on wheat. So a lot of farmers are not planting wheat, or at least down and around some of the river bottom areas. They're saving those better moisture areas for a, a more lucrative, lucrative crop. Well, like I said, winter wheat is king when it comes to spring turkey hunting. So if you're planning on hunting walk-in access or, or you're hunting on private property that has a farmer that gives you access, if they're not planting winter wheat, Again, keep in mind, you're probably going to see fewer birds. So, that's again, that's why we planted a bunch of winter wheat last year strictly for the deer and the turkeys. The birds are here, and the birds that have survived, we've got some nice, older, mature, age-class birds. Uh, just We just don't have the number of jakes that, you know, running around that we normally do. So, for my personal hunts this year that I'm running, I, I shut it down and kind of necked it down again, just like I did last year. I'm only taking four groups. Uh, restricting them to one bird apiece, and we'll have a really good, successful, fun hunt, but we'll just try to not hammer them as bad. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, um, going around social media, the white-faced uh, DSD strutter. Um, I'm actually uh, going to have the guy, hopefully, on the podcast to talk about it. Um, and I, I was at NWTF at the convention, and um, I asked Dave about it, and he said, yeah, the guy's a good customer and has been telling him uh, for years now that he's having unbelievable success with, with a white-faced strutter. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dulled-down, 
white face. It's not, you know, completely white, but it's it's definitely when you look at it from a distance, it's it's pretty dang white. Um, curious your thoughts. Uh, I mean, you've seen a number of the Strutter decoys, whether it be the you know the Primos B Mobile or you know all the different um, Strutters. Obviously, I like the DSD. I, I've been using that Strutter for a long time, and I know you have done some videos years ago on you know painting your Strutter decoys different colors. Curious what your thoughts are on the white. Well, white is a very dominant bird. Um, you can watch, it, what you're, if you're watching a group of, of gobblers or even jakes, you can definitely tell which one, believe, if, if there are multiple birds in a group, so I say early season. You, you and I both have seen this. When you're, when you're just coming out of winter, whether we're talking Goulds, Merriams, Rio Grande, Turkeys, those, those birds flock up in the winter. And then as they break up out of those winter flocks, you, there's sometimes where you have two, three, four, five, ten gobblers all strutting together, trying to show off and, and just starting their pecking order and their dominance. Well, you can tell oftentimes the, the dominant bird in the group because he'll have a white head or it'll be that bluish white head when all the other ones will have a red, white, and blue head. Then the other flip side of that is you'll see some birds that have just a red head they can change the color, but a white head denotes a dominant bird. And so from my opinion, based on my experience and, and watching birds, well, and, and it's not, I guess it can't, I, it's not even my opinion. I know that the um, Primos guys changed uh, from, from some um, feedback from some folks. When you put a white head on a decoy, you are really going after the most dominant bird in that flock. Now, if you are in an area where there's a lot of competition and you're in an area where you have a lot of birds that, that you know, mature big, old, mature birds, and especially if you want to go out and target the most dominant birds in this area, then a white head absolutely can work. The problem is if you're dealing with more timid individuals or subordinate birds, a white head can actually stand them off a little bit. They'll wait. They don't they don't want to get their butt whipped. If they think it's a it's a more dominant bird than they are, then then a lot of times they'll just sit up there and strut and they may not come in and engage the decoys directly. Doesn't mean you're not going to get a shot at them, especially if you're using a shotgun and you can shoot 40, 50, 60 yards or whatever. But for me, when I'm running uh, hunters or if I'm videoing for myself, I always prefer to have a red, white, and blue head because a gobbler or a jake, a tom, a tom turkey that has a red, white, and blue head, he is showing off, and he's showing off for a hen. He's trying to be attractive for the ladies. He's trying to gather attention. And so another bird comes in on that setup. If a dominant bird sees that, and sees that red, white, and blue head on that other turkey, he knows that turkey's trying to gather attention from the hens. And a lot of times a, a dominant bird will come in and beat the piss out of it. If you have a subordinate bird, however, because a red, white, and blue head does not necessarily relay dominance, another even subordinate bird or a more timid bird oftentimes will still come into your setup 
because even if he doesn't, even if he's a lover and not a fighter, say he just doesn't want to fight, but he thinks that that gobbler's showing off for hens, well, then he'll come over there and try to show off as well, but he doesn't feel as threatened unless that other turkey, you know, makes a move towards him or, or you know, chases after him, kicks at him or whatever. But if it's a decoy, obviously not going to. So a lot of times you can sucker those subordinate toms into your spread as well. So I, that is why, if, if I, I mean, unless my memory fails me, you could probably talk to Will, but they used to, on the B, on the killer B, okay, when Primos came up with a killer B first, it was a white head. And then they changed when they went to the B mobile. They changed it purposefully, changed it to a red, white, and blue because it had better success across the board on different populations of birds. Chris, um, you're on your phone right now, but I'm wondering if you can multitask here and um, go on Instagram um, and go to – I just – I want you to see this picture, and I want I want your initial impression of what you see, and maybe it will ch not change what you said, but maybe you'll say this is not a white, you know, this is not what I'm envisioning as a white head. So, sure, I'm on uh, I'm, in, I'm on Instagram. Are you going to post it? So go go to M I G R eight O R one. So M I G R eight O R one and it's a guy named Matt Matt Winters. He's the co owner of Kansas Premier Outfitters. And right, he is the guy M I G R R eight the number eight. Okay. O R Matt Winters. Yeah, and go to the fourth photo down and there's a strutter. See how yep. it is, though? It's, it's, yep. it's white, that's, but they're still blue. Yep, that's a dominant bird. That's a dominant bird. Uh, now, number one, let me, let me just say this. Dude, that thing looks awesome. <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> he did, if, if he painted that head himself, dude, he freaking nailed it. I mean, that, that's a good, he did a great, great job. But, well, and look at the look at the third photo, Chris. There's a Jake where he did the same color there. So there is quite a bit of blue, but he's taken the red out of it. Yeah, so that it's is more, a, that, it's, Give me your that, opinion. That's a dominant bird. Yes, he's what he did is he, he you you notice that the pale blue, the light blue that they usually have on their cheek. Okay. When, when they have a red, white, and blue head, you'll have a very, very stark white forehead or, or cap on their head. They'll have this brilliant sky blue cheek and face, and then their waddles will be that beautiful red. Well, as they go all white, so their head is white, and now their waddles start to go white, their face will pale down, but he nailed it. He, I mean, the guy did a great job. He nailed it because the cheek is not necessarily white. It's, it's a... It's a washed-out pale blue, so it's extremely, extremely realistic. But it is denoting a dominant bird. Okay, let me ask you a question. I know you just were talking about it. Um, I got several trains of thought. One train of thought is we've gone, you know, you talk about the whipping boy and have your jake set off to the side. 
bird comes into the set and the bird is going to not want to mess with the gobbler or some, you know, the full strut decoy, he's going to go straight over to the whipping boy. Typically, those jakes have, you know, bright red heads and they go over there and just beat, beat the pants off of them. Um, now he, he's showing a jake with that same color and then you're talking about this being a dominant bird. My question is, wouldn't you want a subordinate bird, or is it the fact that the, the, the full strutter is in a dominant, it has a dominant head, so other gobblers, they just can't stand it and have to come take a look at, at because this bird's got this dominant face, dominant head, and he's, and he's probably breeding hens? I would almost think it'd be the opposite, where you want a bird that doesn't have a lot of confidence. And, you know, redhead typically, I've, you know, is when they want to fight and all that kind of stuff. I would think you don't want red, but I'm a little confused. Well, you know, and to be honest, it all depends on the type of bird that you're targeting. If he, from, from the pictures I'm looking at, I, I am going to assume... Don't quote me on this. I don't know this, but I'm going to assume he's probably more on the eastern half of, of Kansas. And if that is the case, I can tell you right now. Um, well, hold on a minute. Hold, let me. Let me. He's got pictures. Those look like Rios. Maybe he's not. They, it's hard to tell if he's got if he's going after Easterns or Rios. It almost looks like they've got a buff tail fan, so maybe he is maybe he is chasing Rios. But the thing is, it depends on the, the population of birds that you have and where you are. If you've got a bunch of just big, mature gobblers running around and you just want to go after the top, you know, the, the biggest, most aggressive, most dominant birds in your area then a white head is not a bad way to do it. Quite honestly, if you if you want to look at it, almost you can equate that to using bugles in a, you know, people say challenge bugles or whatever. If, if you're going to chase bull elk and all you want to do is bugle at them or threaten them and challenge them or whatever, well, you're only going to take a subset of that population that you encounter, of, of 10 different bulls that you encounter in that valley, there might be only one or maybe two that are wanting to play that game. Well, if that's the game that you want to play and you don't care about walking past that other eight or nine bulls, you don't care. Same thing here. He may be in an area where it just it's just covered up in big, mature, you know, four, five-year-old birds, and he doesn't want to deal with two-year-olds. He, if he's an outfitter, which obviously he is, if, if he's not wanting to harvest two-year-old birds and he's wanting to harvest those four, five-year-old birds or better, that the biggest birds, you know, biggest spurs, the biggest beards, of just gigantic body, this would be a way to weed out the birds that are going to show up. So it, it all depends on what you want to do. I, for me, I just want to get every bird in into the decoy spread and then let the client or let the hunter or the kid decide if they want to take them or not. We can, we can evaluate from there. So for me, I'm like you. I prefer to have a red, white, blue head because I want to sucker every single turkey smack dab 10 yards in front of my setup, I mean, and just beat up on my decoys. But it all depends on what he wants to do. 
the red, the red on the waddles, okay, the, if, you know, most full strut decoys, you see the waddles are red. You see red, white, and blue. I've seen some decoys that are just real bright red heads. What is the downside to a full, you know, really, really red head? Well, that's a bird that is in a defensive or an aggressive posture, kind of ready to fight, ready to get in, get in, mix it up. You know, you'll see Jake's with a red head from a defense standpoint saying, you know, bright red head, don't mess with me, don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aggravated, I'm, I'm on a defensive posture, I'm, I'm willing to fight you if you're, if you're going to get stupid. Same thing with any, another mature bird. If, if it's a all flat out red head, a lot of times that's a very aggressive posture in the standpoint of, you know, it's a, yeah. Go ahead. Which most of the time that's going to chase birds off. They're going to be like, I don't want to fight. Most birds don't want to fight. Correct. That's why a lot of times you, most of the time, will see a bright red head on a Jake. It's, it's, what about it's, it's, what about if you went all blue or not all blue, but really heavy focus on blue? Because my interpretation is blue is just, you know, they're just they're they're really showing off. They're really, um, it's like a real content. You know, no, there's no trouble around. Everything's good. You know, usually there's hens right there, and he's just full blue, strutting with lots of blue and white, but a lot of blue. Um, yeah. Why not going with all blue? I the only reason why I could say that is because I don't know if I've ever seen waddles all blue. Usually it's that That's just true. the face. The face is just. I mean, I it's it's better than sky blue. I know what you're talking about. That's why my, my decoys are painted the way they are. I've got, which I, thank you for the reminder. I need to touch mine up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, it's just a bright blue face, bright white head cap, and then bright red around the waddles, and then that blue, you'll see the blue veining down, you know, around the back of their head and, and down around under their chin and stuff, but usually it's that bright, bright, bright blue cheek. I do. I want, as soon as a gobbler comes around the bend or comes over a hill i want him to see that red white blue head i want to see i want him to see the fan i want him to see that full body and i want him to get every ounce of stimulus to say that bird is trying to gather attention attention for hens who the hell is that yeah. i want to get down there and find out what he's doing yeah it's good stuff well i'm gonna have matt on and we can talk about it and and uh it'll be good yeah. stuff uh I want to leave turkeys here for a second, and I want to break into Colorado. Obviously, we have a deadline coming up here of April 3rd, but I wanted to start out by saying you had just posted a video um, on YouTube, and I watched it in its entirety, and it, you self-filmed after you had taken your uh, friend's uh, son or whoever that was, and he shot that 350 or whatever, however big that over-the-counter bull was in Colorado on his first elk. Um, then you went up, you came back uh, a few days later, a few weeks later, and, you know, tried to fill your tag before you went to Arizona, and you filmed the whole thing. And I have to say, I thought it was the best documented, self-filmed elk hunt, not only that you've done, but that I've seen showing everything from start to finish and breaking it down in a way that only only you can do, in my opinion. Um, talk to me about the feedback 
you know, set the scene a little bit better than I did, and then talk to me about the feedback that you've gotten from it. Yeah, well, I, no, I appreciate that the comments because this was kind of a, a test. I, you know, I, when originally in the back in the days when YouTube was just starting out, everybody wanted these just short little clips. You know, give me five minutes, give me ten minutes, give me fifty. You know, fifteen minutes was like goodness gracious, you're going to make me watch fifteen minutes. And then you know, over time, you know, TV episodes. They're, you know, on television, a 30-minute show is, is actually only about 22 to 23 minutes of action footage. The rest of it's commercials and repeats and stuff. So, um, so then, then things started going where people were watching, you know, a, say a 20 to 25-minute to video. Well, recently there's been more and more people putting full-length features on YouTube and Vimeo and, and other outlets like that because you can watch them on your TV or whatever. So I had a number of my other hunts that were, you know, say 30, 40 minutes long or whatever. This one, I said, you know, what if I did a full hour long extended length version? I didn't know if anybody was going to watch it, if anybody was going to like it. Uh, but because that's the thing is, you know, you and, I mean, you anybody that knows me knows that Row Hunting Resources is about education. And so me putting together a video, you're not going to see well, I can't say you're never going to see it, but 99.9% .9 of the time, you don't see me out there, you know, you're not going to see a picture of a leaf and then, then a picture of, of a, a, you know, a camp stove and then, you know, starry night and then, you know, just all this B-roll footage. I, I just, if I'm going to ask you to spend your time with me, whether it's in person, whether it's on our website, whether it's on the YouTube channel, I, I want to give you something. So mine's educational. So, yeah, we we started out, I went on, you know, I took my uncle and his son, my cousin, on their, well, my uncle's hunted with me before, but his son, it was his first elk hunt. And so for the fourth day of the season last year, we smoked a giant, and it was awesome. Got you know, got that animal packed out. They left. Um, I went back up to finish my hunt, and I went to a different area up in the high country and got into a number of really good bulls, but just the wind and just for a variety of reasons, just it just never got a shot off up in the high country. So, as far as I was concerned, you know, I had two weeks of my hunt, and then I had to go back home, come back home to pick up some stuff, and then I had to head back out to Arizona. So. When I left and I headed back down to Arizona, I literally had to drive. I didn't literally have to, but I, it's one of those things where you're driving down the road and you're like, I can see where I was just hunting. I was like, all right, I got to try. So literally, I'm packed up, ready to head to Arizona. I just, I, I got a little voice, like, you got to go in there. So I just pulled out. I just took a detour, pulled into the trailhead, crashed that night, got up the next morning, and it literally was just going to be a, a bonsai one morning hunt, go in, see if I can't get something, and if, if it works, great. If it doesn't, oh, well, head to Arizona. And the bull, I mean, it, it worked. <laughs> it worked. So, um, but, yeah, that the entire episode is about, why, you know, what was I doing? So why was I standing where I was standing? Why did I choose this spot? You know, what, do I, what am I thinking about why I chose this spot? Now, what I'm, now that I found or heard a bull, what am I going to do? Why am I going to? I'm, why am I going to do it? And here are some tidbits, and here's some tips for you, the, the, the viewer, to keep in mind. If you're doing this, 
in the future. If you want to prospect and you want to find bulls on heavily pressured, heavily hunted public ground and over-the-counter units, there's things that I do that are a little different than everybody else, and they, if you do a lot of little things right, you, you can have success. And this documents that whole thing, um, and it just it worked out beautifully that the way the bull came up the hill and at the speed he, it, he came up the hill, it allowed me to get that camera on him and then still be able to get the, get the shot off. That's, that's usually for me when I'm self-filming that's the number one issue of actually getting the kill on camera. I've got two other videos that folks can watch on elk hunts, and both shots are with the animal off camera. I mean, he literally just steps out of screen, and you just don't you don't get to see the actual animal on camera. This one, this one worked out pretty well. So I, and the the feedback has been great. Um, it's just I, I'm I am I'm blown away. I'm I'm very very grateful to everybody who's watched it and and provided comments and so I, people seem to like it and so I'm going to see if I can't do some more of this style in the future. Yeah, I thought it was great. And then you're you're field dressing out that bull and the the bull that you had heard in there before bugles and he comes right in and you know you're covered in blood and you're taking care of your, your bull you had just killed, and you call that thing up to, like, I don't know, 10 yards or something. Um, yeah. It's one of those things you, you always wonder, if you wouldn't have shot that bull, would things have played out, or you know, and would you have called him in, or was it just one of those things that just worked out the way it did, and it was just one of those you just smile and laugh about, you know, probably a, another, you know, 340, 350-inch bull, wasn't it? I think, you know, originally I thought he was bigger than, you know, being able to sit and watch footage is huge. So I, when, it, when it unfolded in front of me, I thought he was every bit of a 340, 350 type bull. But, you know, closer inspection on the video, he might have been the 330, 340, but he was a 7 by 8. Right, so more dominant, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's probably an 8, 9-year-old bull. I mean, he was a legitimate old, mature bull. The body size on him, he was just a huge tank. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you sit there and you go, goodness gracious, maybe I should have passed on the bull that I shot, and I should. Well, okay, I shot a younger age class bull, and he came up out of the bottom where that other bull was. So there's no guarantee if I had passed on my bull. Well. You know, the commentary, you know, I, I was fighting that the wind was all over the place that morning. If that bull had come in and spooked, there's, I, I have no doubt that he would have just turned like, like he did after the shot. He just turned, boom, bolted, and went right straight down to the bottom. You know, he was headed to the bottom, right back to where those other elk were. So if I had just passed him, now, if he just wandered off and, and continued on and I didn't spook him, then absolutely, I probably could have continued on my way down. I could have probably gotten in close to that other bigger bull, and who knows what would have happened. But, man, we're talking last morning after hunting two weeks hard. He's got a big, plump, fat body, and he walks up to 16, 17 yards and is going to stand there for me. Yeah, he's going he's, he's gonna to take a ride in my truck. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna take that one for granted. I, I'll just. I'll. I love the fact that you know I got to see that other bull. And what I didn't show 
in that footage was, you know, that, okay, so we get the, I get the bull down. I'm by myself. Uh, get it taken care of. I start shuttling it down to the creek. Well, by the time dark comes, I've got it all down to the creek, and I'm just whooped. And so I take a load out to the truck, get out. Well, the next day, I spend the day hauling meat out and get most of everything out because it's about three, three and a half miles back in. So I get most everything out. I'm just catting out. The bears have gotten into it. I'm about cashed. Well, there was a, a friend of a friend who was also happened to be hunting in that area, and I told him, he goes, well, I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a hand. I'll help you carry out that last load. And so I told him, I said, dude, if, you, if you'll carry a quarter, I said, we'll get it out, we'll get it to the processor, I'll take a shower. I'll come back in here. I'll spend the, the next morning or day with you, and I'll see if we can, you know, I'll put you on this bull, and we'll see if we can't kill that big bull. And we did. We found him. But he just, I mean, we got to sit there and watch him for about an hour with a bunch of cows, and he's running off younger bulls. But the problem was is where he was. It was just There was just, again, the wind was horrible. There was just no way to get on it. So we got it. We actually had a good chance to sit and study that bull and, and really pick him apart and, you know, it, it, it didn't work out for this other kid, but at least he had a great hunt that next morning, and it, it was a, it was a fun experience. I, I don't mind that type of stuff. My freezer's full. I had a fun hunt. Saw some awesome bulls. Can't be. I can't ask for much better than that. How many elk? How many elk would you suspect you've shot with your bow? <sighs> Not as many as a lot of other people. I, I started. I only started elk hunting late 90s so it's 15 16 now i think i think how many how many of those would you say are otc and i know you've drawn a limited draw in colorado a few times uh only two i've only i've i drew a a unit one tag in 2009 and i killed a bull there and then i drew a 49 tag and killed a bull there so all the other ones are over the counter and would you say like yeah. public land, over the counter, like that's what you cut your teeth on. But the interesting thing is, I always hear you talking about wanting to shoot a mature bull, not necessarily too worried about antler configuration. No, your 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 goal is always to shoot a mature bull, and you actually pass bulls uh, that are not mature in most cases. Um, obviously, this was a one day, you know. You know, you were headed to Arizona and you shot a five point that was probably what a four year old, three three or four year old bull. Oh, I'm I think he was three, yeah, three three and a half year old bull. This one was, and and a couple years ago, same thing. I killed a three and a half year old six by six, but that was after I had hunted hard and I missed a shot at a legit four or five year old, just split, just a big five by five. So yeah, no, for me. I like age class. I, I really do like age class because when they're, you know, a year and a half, two and a half, they're babies, and so a lot of times you can get them babies to come running in without, uh, and, I, and, I'm, and I don't mean this for those people that are still wanting to kill their first elk. This is, for me, for, for the experience that I have, I usually a two-and-a-half-year-old bulls, I, I can usually call them in if they're in the area. I want to try to challenge myself to, to find a bull that's been around a little bit and has been there, done that, played the game, and, and has a little bit more age and experience to him. So if I can shoot a four-year-old 
bull or better. That is my goal. I don't care what he looks like. Like my best bull that I killed on over the counter land, uh, he would have been a giant, except he busted off his entire left main beam after his third. Um, and you know that you've seen on some of the elk module footage that I for the educational stuff that I do on the uh, Row Hunting Resources website. There's a couple bulls in there that I would, if I'd had a tag, oh, the Twizzler, uh, Captain Hook, you know, it's got a, you know, beautiful 6x6 six six or beautiful 7, or beautiful 6 point or beautiful 7 point on one side, and then the other side maybe this weird freaky hook or weird freaky club thing in the G. The bull wouldn't score worth peanuts, but it's an 8 or 9, 10-year-old bull. Oh heck yes! I'll shoot that. Heck yes, I will. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's let's take just a second here. Uh, I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank Gohan Insider for their title sponsorship of this podcast. I want to uh, remind all of you listeners: if you're not already a Gohan Insider member, I strongly encourage you to do so. You can go to gohunt.com forward slash insider, click on the blue join now button, follow the prompts, and enter the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. You can actually redeem those right away and purchase something on the site. Uh, they've got great gear on the site, but what they're known for the most is their draw odds and harvest statistics, the most accurate draw odds uh, of all the western states. Um, and they've even entered into the arena of breaking down the draw odds on antlerless hunts, which a lot of people are excited about. Um, but if you're not a Gold Insider member, I strongly encourage you to do so. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's K-U-I-U.com. If you want to find out about the best ultralight hunting gear, go to the website, go to the Kuyu website, check it out. I want to thank Jason Harrison for his sponsorship. Also want to thank the Optics Authority, the Outdoorsman's at outdoorsmans.com, 1-800-291-8065. Cody Nelson has been a strong supporter of this podcast. If you use the J. Scott promo code there, you're going to get a 10% discount with the Optics Authority there at the Outdoorsman's. And Phonescope.com, if you use the JScott16 promo code, you get a 10% discount. Uh, Chris, obviously the deadline is April 3rd in Colorado uh, for all of the big game species there. I wanted to break into some of the draw units and ask you about your personal strategy for Colorado since you hunt OTC most of the time. You used to be a Colorado resident. Now you're a Colorado non-resident. You live in Kansas. You still routinely are, are in Colorado a lot. You know a lot about the state. You've hunted a lot of the units. Um, just, just curious what your personal strategy is for uh, putting in and applying uh, in Colorado. Well, now uh, it's, you know, I really do think there's a lot of good units out there in the state that you can draw with, well, especially for a resident. With a resident, you can draw some great units for you, one, two, three, four points. As a non-resident, bump that up one or two points. So there's a, you know, I, back in 2009, I had 12 pre preference points. And so 
but the point creep kept going, and you could just see the writing on the wall that this it just was going to be crazy. So I put in, and I drew. I, I burned my points on Unit 1 up in the northwest part of the state. Uh, the reason why I chose Unit 1 was simply for no other reason than that there's only two archery tags given out. So at that time, I was able to draw Unit 1 with 12 points. I think now it's like 14 or 15 points, but I was able to draw Unit 1. So I burned those points, but then since then, I, me personally, I do not sit and hold on to points. As soon as I can draw some of these lower point units that I, you know, I, that I want to hunt in, I'll, I'll burn my points. I really think that people, um, if you are just starting out, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to catch up. If you want to put in for 1, 201, 210, 40, 61, 76, and, and, and like that, if you're just starting out, it's, you're probably looking at 15, 20 years before you even can think about pulling that tag, unless unless you, you want to take advantage of that hybrid draw. And I, Jay, I know that you talked about that with a couple of your other guests, but basically what you need to do is you need to you put in for up, you know, at least five years, and once you have five preference points, then you then if you apply for these you know upper tier units like in the northwest part of the state state then you have a small chance at drawing that tag with only five six seven points but I'm telling you there's a lot of good places to hunt that only take a handful of points and I don't know if it's worth worth just holding out for you know those fifteen point plus units anymore you know so for me that's are there any of those middle tier you know are there are there any of those middle tier units that that you're thinking about or that you've hunted that you know you wouldn't mind sharing as far as things that you know units that guys ought to look at consider well i quite honestly every one of those ones that only take two three four preference points i mean so you know Unit twenty. If I just look at the, if I look at the uh, regs, let me just tell you know, the ones that I know of: um, twenty, thirty-nine, three ninety-one, five hundred one fifty, five hundred forty-nine, forty-eight, um, eighty-four. Those are those are ones that I know of that that I've actually been in at you know from time to time or gone with folks. Those can be great units to to pull a tag on. You know, but you just each one is going to be a little different. You know, if you look at where they lie out or lay, a lot of them are going to be those those higher mountain areas, or at least have access to the to the alpine or, or above timberline. Some of them are going to have more private land than others. You know, twenty unit twenty can be a great tag, but there's a lot of private land in it. Um, Forty nine is a, is a lot of fun. I, the reason why I chose forty nine was simply because I had experience in there from back in the day when I worked in there with the elk study. So it was just one of those places where I was like, you know what, I'd like to go back there someday. And same thing with forty eight. Forty eight is is a place I used to work on the elk study, so I've got some familiarity in there. Uh, Eighty four. All of them are going to have a little bit of a difference, and it all depends on on what type of experience the person wants. But any of those one, two, three, four point units, again, if you're a non-resident, bump it up, bump it up another at least one preference point. But any of those those units are are they're managed for less generally a few less hunters and more age class and and you know, a few more 
uh, bulls to cows. So you're going to have a higher bull to cow ratio in those areas than you are, say, in most over-the-counter units. So generally speaking, you're going to be able to get into better elk and more of them and, and have a little bit better of experience. So, yeah, absolutely. Just figure out what kind of hunt you want. Do you want a high elevation one? Do you want you know lower elevation one? Do you want a back plant, you know, back country wilderness type experience? Do you want you know ATV access? It all, all depends on the experience that you want, and then just choose that unit. And just go for it. Would you say, in your experience, that those units that are you know say a one to five point you know type type unit are they a better typically are they a better experience than OTC in general? In my opinion, I think they are simply because they are managed for a little bit higher bull to cow ratio. Now, that does not mean that you're not going to run into other hunters. For instance, I mean, right. there, there's, there's some of these that they still give out a, a boat pile of tag. So you still may end up dealing with other hunters. It's just there's just usually a higher bull to cow ratio it means you have more bulls running around and a little bit more competition, meaning you get a little bit more vocalizations and, and a little bit more encounters with your calling. So it's just, it's just a higher quality experience in the field. But don't, don't misconstrue that to say you're going to leave all the hunters behind. The only way you're going to do that is especially, you know, the Northwest units, 61, you know, some of these premier units where they do severely restrict the number of tags that they give out. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at um, Gohan Insider Draws, and you mentioned 48. Like, it's 30% with one point, and it's 100% with two. And 49 is 100% with uh, five points, uh, yeah. and 64%, and this is non-resident, um, with four. Um, you know, so that, that gives opportunity. We've talked about, like, 55. It's 100% draw um, with zero points. Um, and, you know, so you got to kind of look over these and find what you're looking for, where you want to hunt. For those guys out there, Chris, you know, you, you talk about you got to figure out whether you want, you know, above timberline, you know, what type of terrain, what type of topography. And I know there's elk in all of it, but you personally, um, have you always liked to hunt certain type of terrain, and has that changed over time? Um, you know, is it like, oh, I want to hunt, you know, 12,000 feet or more, you know, or no, I want to be between, you know, 9,000 and 10,5. Is, is there any one zone that, you, you, you know, you constantly look at in these units when you're trying to pick it, or is it just kind of random? Well, it's definitely not random, uh, but I will say I enjoy from, you know, 12,000, 13,000 feet all the way down to, you know, seven to 9,000 feet. You know, I, I, there's, for some, I don't know, I can't explain it, but I am, abso I am absolutely lo in love with the low elevation, the ponderosa pine forest system. I mean, I just, I just love it, which that's at a lower elevation. But obviously, I've got my high country camp, and I, you know, so I like to hunt elk, <laughs> and I'm going to go wherever I think I could be successful and, and find some decent bulls. There's there's places where, well, my high country camp, you know, you can watch that on my YouTube channel. I've got a hunt in there where we, you know, it's five 
what five six miles back in and you know horse you know pack stuff out with horses and um everything is i mean literally i sleep at that like just shy of twelve thousand feet and, and everything that i'm hunting at is, is 11 5 to 12 5 but then last year i was down in the ponderosa pines and there's been places where literally i've hunted where i could literally pull an arrow out of my quiver and just football throw it you know or javelin throw it and i could have launched it and, and landed on i-70 so I, I just i look at where i'm going to hunt based on where i think i can find elk where i can get away from other people it, 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 there might be a heck of a lot of other people there like where i was last year it was just pounded with people but there were pockets on the mountain that i knew where i could just go and and you know, get away from somebody and find out there. So I really look at it from a standpoint of where, what, what is the moisture cycle going to do? What area produced the best, you know, looks, has the best food or feed? What, you know, what, I look at everything across the board and then I choose where I'm going to go from there. And quite honestly, when I'm talking about strictly over the counter, I usually try to maintain two or three different places across the state that I always keep an eye on because I might go, like, for instance, a couple years ago, I went into my high country camp, and it had been going downhill. Uh, there was other people who were hunting it. There had been some changes on, you know, the activity up there, and so there were fewer and fewer elk utilizing it. And so, and I, you, you had spoken to one of your previous guests, uh, I think two podcasts ago, on, on just what's going on with our elk halves and survivability. But So my high country camp was just not as good anymore. And so this one year, yeah, I went up there, hiked in three, three days before season, and there wasn't an animal on the mountain, nowhere, no, nowhere. So I, I mean, literally packed back out, and I went to a completely different portion of the state just because I want to have – a plan B option and a plan C option. So for me, I do. I look at the weather. I look at what's going on, and I look at, you know, where people are going to be, and then I try to figure out where I want to dovetail myself into. Chris, you had sent me the Colorado Snowtail uh, snow water map showing uh, basically the percent of snowpack um, updated, and this was updated as of March 14th. Um, and it looks like if you take the northwest corner, the Yampa White River drainages, uh, that, that area is 77% of normal. You know, kind of the north central, which would be like above Fort Collins, the North Platte area, 86%. And then you take the southwest, the San Miguel, the Dolores, the Animas, the San Juan, it's 48. So it's, I mean, under 50% of normal. Gunnison area, Gunnison Basin looks like 57%. Um, the upper Rio Grande, 51%, and then you've got the Arkansas Valley, kind of, you know, what would be the southeast portion of the state where there's, you know, you know the, the, the Sangre de Cristos and some of those, you know, where there's still elk, it looks like it's about 58% of normal. So kind of north of that I-70 line, it looks like, you know, 75 to 85% of normal. And it looks like the south part of Colorado, definitely a lot less moisture. We've talked about it on a few of these prior episodes about how moisture affects and what have you. You know, the, the guys that are heavily into, you know, deer hunting and such, you know, th these mild winters don't bother them at all. 
Um, obviously, you're into elk. You like mule deer as well. But, um, you know, how, how does a mild winter like this, in your mind, how should an elk hunter, when they're looking at putting in for the draw, how, how should they, you know, plan their, their hunts according to the, the moisture? Or do you think it's not a huge factor? Uh, I think it's definitely a factor, but more importantly, I think you can't, me, I don't look at just this snowtail data and the winter snowpack as the end-all, be-all. What I really focus in on is, okay, what was the, the moisture cycle the summer and fall prior? How much feed is on that mountain or on those, on those slopes? Did this, if, if an area had good rainfall, the previous summer into fall, and there's a lot of, of standing feed, well, then a dry or an easy winter is just that. It's an easy winter. And so body condition of the animal should be higher. If the body condition is higher, then they're going into spring in a very good physiological state. Their body condition is, is in a great shape. The question at that point is, all right, what does that snowpack look like? Where is it? And then what is the, what's the rest of the, you know, the spring and then into the summer? What does that rainfall end up looking like? So if you, but different habitats are different. So let's take, it for instance, the, the northwest part of the state. When we just looked at that snowtail, you said it was like 70-some. I think the, the, just a week or so ago when I sent it to you, it was it was down or it, they had it listed as orange. It wasn't in the yellow. It was in orange. I think it was like fifty or sixty percent. So they must have gotten some sort of moisture um, recently. But that keep again that's snowpack. That's basin. So that means it doesn't mean across the entire unit, just what drains. So it might have only hit the higher portions, the higher elevation areas, and the bulk of the units may still be very very dry. So for instance, one two. 201, 10, that area up there, what I've been, you know, a buddy of mine had the governor's tag, the, the raffle tag for elk last year, killed a smoker of a bull up there last fall, but he told me it was dry, 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 dry up there last summer and fall, so there was not a lot of feed. Well, if there's not a lot of food now, and then you go into an easy winter, well, that's good. But what that's telling me is you're not going into the spring with a lot of feed, and now you're not going into the spring with a lot of moisture. It might be rough up there for, you know, body condition, which then translates into initially antler development, versus if you go, say, in the central portion of the state, well, I know where I hunted last year up in some of the high country, Goodness gracious, it rained so much. I mean, the, the grass, the cool season grasses were waist high. Well, there's so much food on the mountain that if we're sitting at 70 or 80% snowpack, well, that's an easy winter, so the animals should be in a great condition. But more importantly, if we're at 80%, okay, yeah, that's not as good as what we would like it to be. However, you're still going to get some spring green up, and those cool season grasses are going to respond. So between what happened last summer and fall, what's going on now, and what's going to be available to them in the month of April, May, and early June, 
they're in great shape. Now, if all of a sudden, you know, rest of June, July, and August, there's no moisture, okay, well, then that's a different story. But for some of these areas, if you're dealing with a high country area that, that has a lot of cool season grasses and they had a lot of moisture last summer, it's probably not going to be a big deal. But if you look at, like, the southwest part of the state, they were bone dry last year. Now they're even criti more critically dry this year. And, and, for and you know, you look at some of that stuff, I'm, you know, we're talking about elk, but I'm looking at just when the bears come out of the den. I mean, last year we had a major hard freeze uh, in May that ended up nuking all of the choke cherry and oak brush uh, the flowers, so they, there were no acorns, there was no choke cherries, so a lot of bears went into the den last fall very, very skinny, and now you put on top of it no snowpack, no moisture, and so they come out of the den and there's very little green up, they're going to be hurting. They're going to be hurting. So evaluate, if you're looking at where you want to hunt this year, definitely take a note of what the snowpack looks like, but Use that in context with what moisture was there last summer and fall and how much forage was produced last summer and fall. That will give you a better picture of what the animals are going to look like starting off the early summer. Do you have any input into the other animals, um, goat, sheep, mule deer, um, as far as your experience? Most, if you're talking about the mountain ones, uh, like mountain goats and, and sheep that are on the, the higher elevation habitats, an easy winter is an easy winter. I mean, they, they're, they're loving life right now because it's just, I mean, again, and most of the high country that I know of anyway, at least a lot of it, had really good moisture last summer and fall. And so there was plenty of good vegetation growth. There should be plenty of food on the mountain. Now you put that with an easy winter that they're going to be fat and happy. The question is going to be what happens during the middle, the, 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 once the snow is melted off those top peaks, how dry does it get? How fast does it dry out? And does it stay dry for a long time? If it does, then, then obviously there's an issue. For some of those animals that are, you know, say the sheep, they're down in the canyon country, ooh, like the desert sheep and, and stuff, that, man, that it's going to be, it'll be, it'll be interesting. Just, just from a forage quantity standpoint, not let alone the quality standpoint, um, deer are kind of in the same boat. I mean, they if they had good feed going into the fall winter, they're going to be sitting pretty right now, like your previous two uh, guests were talking about in the Gunnison Valley. I mean, a lot of them are you know a lot of the animals are looking fat. They're looking they're looking plump and good. It all just depends on what happens once that snow melts, it runs off and goes. Do you get those spring rains or not? Okay, I've got a question for you that I probably should not be asking an hour into the podcast. <laughs> but I want just a, just a, I, I kind of want your, and I haven't prompted you on this question, I just kind of, you know, I know you're a, wildlife biologist and ecologist and you study behavior and what have you. So we, well, I'm going to be generalizing here, but we constantly hear that mule deer habitat and other wildlife habitat is being encroached on by development 
and what have you, and it's you know horrible for our mule deer and 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 whatnot. And I'm not really arguing that at all. One thing I will ask though is why do when I drive around, it pretty much doesn't matter what time of year I drive around here in Colorado, all the mule deer are standing in everybody's yards. So yeah. my my question is this, if if those houses weren't there, would they be standing right there in that same spot? Or is it the fact that people have green grass and they can't hunt them there? It, it seems like there's kind of an ironic twist. And I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I've just kind of been wrestling with this. There's mule deer standing in every yard that I drive by. And every, any, any person that has a yard or green grass or, a, a, you know, got any green in their field at all, there, there's mule deer standing in their barns, in, in their driveways, all over. And then you hear on the other side, or not on the other side, but you also hear that, you know, mule deer habitat is, is going away by the day. Do you, as a biologist, do you really feel like some of this urban stuff is, you know, is it truly, you know, killing all of our mule deer habitat? Because I see, you know, every house I go by has 15 deer standing in the yard. Well, yeah, this is a this could be a longer discussion, but it, you have to pay close attention to who is saying that what their motivation is, wh whether that's a hidden agenda or whether it's right up front on their nose, but what, what, are, what are they getting at? And, and let's, let's qualify what the issue actually is. Because, for instance, if you're talking about uh, certain type of development, so say, for instance, you're all of a sudden, uh, okay, here, here's a perfect example, perfect example. All right, just outside of Denver is the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, okay? The Rocky Mountain Arsenal used to be, I'm not even going to go into all the details, used to be military. Uh, there's some reasons why it, there's nobody building houses on it, okay? But it's now a National Wildlife Refuge. And there are just immense mule deer bucks out there. I mean, there's some smoker mule deer out there, okay? It's more along that kind of rolling hill, plains type of habitat. But it is literally on the cusp of urban interface. I mean, literally, you, on one side of the road is the fence, and it's a National Wildlife Refuge, and it's just gargantuan track of nothingness. And literally, on the other side of the road is nothing but asphalt, curb and gutter, and houses and yards and privacy fences, Okay. If all of a sudden the arsenal said, you know what, it's safe to build houses here, we're, we're not going to have this as a wildlife refuge anymore, we're going to open this up to development, okay, you'd have more developers jump on that than they could, I mean, you would all, all of a sudden you'd go from nothing to, you know, a thousand homes going in. Okay, that type of development, yeah, you're nuking wildlife habitat and you are excluding wildlife out of that area. However, you go down to an area, say, like the Black Forest uh, Monument area, or you know, just north of Colorado Springs and, and east of Colorado Springs, northeast of Colorado Springs. 
that is rolling hills, ponderosa pine, uh, where the foothills kind of just meet into the prairies. Incredible, used to be, especially used to be, used to be incredible habitat for deer, elk, pronghorn, turkeys, all sorts of stuff. Well, it it got developed big time. Same thing with the Highlands Ranch area and some of that. So, so some of the areas in Highlands Ranch are, you know, the houses are built 10 foot from one another. Okay, well, obviously, if that's the type of development, you're going to exclude, you're going to be swallowing up habitat. However, in other areas where you have a 35-acre, you know, 20-acre, 35-acre, 50-acre tract where it's a horse property, there's space in there. And so now you've you got two things going. If we want to talk about detriment to wildlife habitat, if we are talking about the way the development is, the structure is, the road structure, fencing or whatever, if we're talking about building development in a manner that truly, physically, behaviorally creates barriers on migratory routes and travel routes, okay, now that, that to me is legit. That's absolutely legit. And that's a yeah, different story. Different story. But... Right. If someone is going to put in a 35-acre ranchette, now obviously if they if they put horses on the whole thing and they graze it down to dirt, well, of course you just you just ruined all your habitat. But there's a lot of people that'll buy a 35-acre ranchette, put a house on it, put a shed on it, and then the rest of it's just grass and, and woods, and and you've got 20 big mule deer bucks standing out behind the barn because the habitat that the deer are still able to utilize is still there. But more importantly, like you said. Now it's safe. There's going to be a heck of a lot less predators there. And I actually, as a consultant, have dealt with this in the Estes Valley. Um, I know I was not very popular with the Division of Wildlife at the time, but there were folks in the Estes Valley that did not want to see any more development. They didn't want to see any more houses go up. They didn't want to see any more apartments or anything like that. They, they liked their view, they like their little open areas behind their house, even though their subdivision was phase one and phase two of a five-phase development, well, phases three, four, and five haven't been developed yet. Well, now that they live there, well, I don't want phase three, four, and five to be developed. Well, okay, you like your house, but now you don't want somebody else's house. Well, we actually testified that, listen, like you said, you can drive through Estes Park and find elk sitting, walking through the McDonald's parking lot. Is it a natural setting? No. Are they thriving? Heck yes. That's, that's, that's my point. That, that's exactly yeah, they, my point. I mean, I've been spending some time here skiing and stuff in Colorado, and I spend the summers here, and I see these urban places, and there's animals everywhere. They're all yeah. over. I mean, I just saw... You know, a group of 30 elk in one field last night, 40 elk in another, 50 elk in another field. And we're talking like by stoplights and everything else. And it's like yeah. on one hand, I, I want, you know, I'm kind of wanting to know what the real, you know, what the answer is. Like it doesn't seem to bother them at all. No, they, the issue, they look happy as a clam. The issue is who is doing the talking because this is one reason why I stepped away from I used to be a certified wildlife biologist, and certification came with the Wildlife Society, the professional organization for wildlife biologists and managers. It, it's still a good organization. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to bash anybody that's involved with it, but, I, but myself and my wife, my, my wife actually sat on the certification board, the, the professional certification board 
and I can tell you how politicized and arbitrary some of our science has become. And so we, Kelly and I, both elected just to kind of step away from that organization because science and actual fact was not being implemented in a unbiased manner. It, you, you have a lot of people that will utilize wildlife concerns as a tool. The, the concern for the wildlife is not the underlying driver of their issue, but it's an emotional, charismatic tool that they can latch onto. So you'll have some people that just do not want oil and gas development anywhere, period. They will use wildlife as the tool or the mechanism by which to argue, well, we shouldn't have oil and gas development. Or they don't like development. This is what happened in the Estes Valley. The, the, local, the, the local CPW folks did not like the development plan, the Estes Valley development plan. They didn't like how the, the Estes that the town of Estes did their development plan, and so they were testifying that wildlife was critical and they could not do development because of critical wildlife issues simply to use the wildlife as a tool just to fight against a plan they didn't like. It, it, it just, it's so disingenuous. Now, granted, it's not a natural setting. We, I understand that, but if we're talking about from a population standpoint, are the, are the animals reproducing? Are they surviving? Yes. Now, the issue might be, and this is legitimate, especially like let's go to the Estes Valley. The problem is you can actually have situations where reproduction is not an issue. Habituation is not an issue. All of a sudden now the issue is we've got too many animals, but now there's too many people, too many, uh, too many human disturbances to where you can't effectively, the, the agency cannot effectively manage the population. But, no, dude, I, I'm with you, brother. I mean, there are so many people that simply use wildlife as a tool and use it as a hammer rather than looking at the situation and say, okay, is this going to be detrimental to this population, yes or no? Now, granted, again, it's not a natural setting. And, no, it's not going to be something that's going to be conducive to a backcountry experience or a, you, maybe we won't be able to hunt those animals as effectively or at all if, if the development continues or whatever this land management practice happens on this landscape. But if that's the case, then we ought to be, my opinion, and, and you, again, for people listening, yeah, you and I had not talked about this, but I'm on the same, ba I'm on the same page because I, I see all the time people will say, well, we can't do X, Y, Z because of wildlife concerns. And then as a wildlife biologist, I look at it and I'm like, that's not a, no, that, the, the, the critters are going to be just fine. You know what I mean? It just, it's, it's a sticky, sticky situation because so many people nowadays have their own agendas, their own biases. They have, they, they, they want to accomplish their own goals and unfortunately, ends justify the means for a lot of people, and they will say whatever they need to say to, to achieve whatever goal that they want to achieve. Because, like, for instance, oil and gas stuff, um, uh, you, I'm sorry, some of, some of, and I'm not going to name names, but some of the most popular hunters on, you know, personalities that are on Instagram that have podcasts now, 
they hunt on the hill ranch in southern Colorado that is absolutely strewn to bits with oil and gas roads and oil and gas wells all over it. And why are they hunting there? They're paying ten grand a pop or whatever it is that to hunt there because there's big bulls and there's a pile of elk everywhere. You go to Vermejo Park, Vermejo Park down in, in New Mexico, you get into some of those areas and there's going to be oil and gas well. Tercio Ranch. Um, Southern Colorado, there's some of the best elk hunting properties out there and they're strewn with roads and they've got oil and gas on them and guess what? The elk are just fine. But that's not politically expedient to talk about a lot of times. You know what I mean? Yep. I'm sure we've pissed a lot of people off now. Well, the thing is, for me as a wildlife biologist, I'm sorry. I, I became a biologist because I, I truly, I, I don't know how to say it, and I'm, I'm probably going to bastardize the, how I say it, but I, I find reverence in the purity of science, of, of, of the of what biology is, what physiology is, the interplay of habitats and the critter, what their behavior is. You know, roads, I mean, people, they're, they're, oh, that's another one. I mean, people will talk about roads all the time. Oh, roads are bad, roads are bad, roads are bad. Really? You ever hunted Unit 9, Arizona? How, how many roads are in Unit 9, Arizona? <laughs> Hundreds. Hunt okay, every, so, I mean, you can't, there's not a mile-by-mile mile square that, that doesn't have a road through it. Yeah, but how many points does it take to, to draw Unit 9, Arizona? What, like 19? Eight, 18, 18 or 19? That, it, that's not because it has a really cool view. It, it's, it's because there's a bolt pile of elk and there's a lot of big ones. Roads in themselves are not a bad thing. Development in itself is not a bad thing. Oil and gas, I mean, how many times, look at, oh, Goodness gracious! You opened up a Pandora's box. <laughs> I mean, look, look at look at logging. Look at what happened. This. You, let me let me round. This I'm kind of losing your audio a little. I'm kind of losing your audio a little bit. Get back close right. to your mic, or, or okay. Yeah. Well, let's let's round this out by saying, okay, look look at timber harvest. We were told, and you know, how many times in the '80s did, were was you know we lost on our forest service land the ability to do timber harvest, clear cutting, or commercial logging because we were told it was evil and it was destroying habitat and, and, and the wildlife was going to die. Well, guess what? Our habitats now, you want to talk about what's really causing issues with our mule deer habitat? You want to talk about what's really causing issues with our elk habitat? You want to really talk about issues affecting our bighorn sheep habitat? It's not development. It's not oil and gas. It's not road. It's the fact that our habitats are becoming too mature. They're becoming too old growth. They're becoming stagnant. That we don't have all of these animals that we as hunters love to chase. Most of them, except maybe mountain goats. Most of those animals thrive off of changing habitats, diversity, younger. It's called a younger cereal stage habitat. So a younger forest type, a younger grassland type. That only comes with disturbance, disturbance like fire, uh, avalanches, or, you know, in this case in Colorado, if you look at what happened with the beetle kill, nature's going to find a way. If we're going to not allow fire to go across the landscape periodically, and then we're not going to replace that with logging, well, 
nature's going to find a way and she's going to wipe out a whole bunch of uh, a timber. Well, that type of change we no longer allow, whether it's natural or man-made. That is what is causing problems. How much... I was on the board of directors for Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society. I can't tell you the hundreds of thousands of dollars that are spent in the name of bighorn sheep habitat improvement projects where you're trying to mow down brush because the habitat's getting choked out. How, much, how many millions of dollars does the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation spend on mowing down trees? How many millions of dollars does the Mule Deer Association or the Mule Deer Foundation spend on mowing down pinion juniper or oak brush or sagebrush? They're, they're trying to just beat back the succession of older growth, stagnant habitat. That, that is our number one issue from a habitat standpoint and, a, and an overall population health Standpoint. Uh, this is a, this would be another one. I we can't do. Well, let me ask reality. you this. Let let me ask you this, and then we'll 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 pick it up on another episode. But why aren't we hearing the people that have a big voice? And maybe some would point a finger at me and say I have a platform that has you know broad reach. But why don't we hear more about this? And why isn't this popular? Because it's not. You can't really wrap it. Do you get emotional about talking about mowing down trees? Or do you no. get emotional when someone says, do you want to save access? Do you want to save your hunting access? Well, yeah, I want to, I want to save my hunting access. All right, well, then sign here. All right, do you, hey, do you like mule deer? Yeah. Do you want to mow, da you want to mow down some trees? Huh? What? I, I, unless you are in tune with, with the conservation uh needs of a species you know what what does that species need for a habitat stand from a habitat standpoint unless that is is something that you are very passionate about it's very difficult to get people fired up about it i mean again you, you go to any of these local banquets most of it if you talk the rocky mountain bighorn society mule deer association or mule deer foundation you're talking rocky mountain elk foundation if you're going to a, a local banquet how many people are actually there even though the state of Colorado has tens upon tens of thousands of elk hunters, when it comes down to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation national, or state banquets, you'll probably have a total, total, maybe a couple thousand people show up. It's just not sexy. It's just not charismatic. It's just not something that, you get, that people get riled up about. But I'll tell you, um, and again, this is, so, this is such a big conversation. I, I, I whether... Man, I, I used to be involved with a lot of stuff in Colorado, all the way up to the state governmental level, and you know, sat on the statewide working group for climate change with the Sierra, you know, with with the Nature Conservancy and other environmental groups and stuff. I'll tell you, the Nature Conservancy's been screaming about this for a year. Corridors, big one, huge. Preserving our the diversity of our habitat, huge. Now, granted. I and Nature Conservancy may not see eye to eye on, on what the, you know, what we think about hunting and, and utilization of some of these things, but these have been big issues since I was a kid. You know, I remember Trout Unlimited joined when I was a kid. What, what was the big thing? We, we need to, re, you know, rehab some of our trout streams and, and protect our flows, and 
that's all still stuff that's still the same thing today. But it's just not sexy. It's not something that gets people fired up. But it is the number one reason why we don't have as many elk or we don't have as many deer or we don't have as many turkeys as I really truly believe we could have in the state. You know, I mean, this is, again, you talked about it with another one of your, your guests, but, you know, when we sit there and we look at the population numbers across the state and we look at hunter numbers and people say, well, we want to increase the number of hunters, well, the only way, in my opinion, the only way you're going to increase the number of hunters is increase the number of animals and increase the success rate each individual hunter has across you the You have land. to make it fun. You have to make that it where people go out and can see animals and shoot animals or else they're going to lose interest and play video games. Like, Bingo. I don't exactly. understand... I don't understand the logic of, 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 you know, trying to reduce numbers when you're going to make it not as fun. You're trying to raise hunter numbers and reduce animal numbers. That seems like a, a wrong, it's an inverse relationship that's like going the wrong way. It is. You, are, you nailed it. You are. Now, the reason why, now, okay, I'm not going to throw the, the agency under the biologist under the bus just yet because you have two things going there. They are managing the population within the the framework of the existing habitat that they have, number one. And number two, they have to take into account the, the conflicts that they have with some of these critters. So, for instance, if you're talking about elk and you're talking about some of these areas in, in well, there's, there's a, across the state where we have elk, there are places where they do manage those numbers to be lower than probably what the habitat could technically support because there's cattle grazing in the area. There are ranchers in the area. And if you don't think the Colorado Farm Bureau and the Colorado Cattlemen's Association aren't big lobbyists and, and don't have uh, a lot of clout, you're wrong. They do. And it's, it, they're not evil. And there's some people, there's some of the more environmental-leaning sportsmen's groups that, that – just really hate the Farm Bureau and hate the cattlemen. I love Mike. I have a very good or had a very good working relationship with both agencies or organizations, I should say. They're just looking out for their individual members, and there are some places where elk come down out of the high country. They descend on a private ranch, and I mean they will eat everything out of house and home. They're knocking down haystacks and everything else, and so people trying to raise cattle, it's a problem. So there are places where we are managed, the agency manages at a lower population to help alleviate conflicts. And again, they're going to be managing that population based off of what they believe the habitat at that time can support. My argument has always been, rather than trying to kill more animals, why don't we try to increase the productivity of our habitat especially on public ground, especially back in away from private property, why don't we increase the level of impact we have on productivity? And then we can, like you said, we can increase the number of people that are enjoying the outdoors. One thing that, and, and again, here we are an hour and a half in, I shouldn't even mention it, but one thing that makes me <laughs> nervous about some of these groups that are popping up is that they're wanting to fight for our public lands and they don't, we don't want to lose public access, which is great. I agree with all of that. But I worry that some of them deep down want no access and they actually want to shut things down 
and they're way more environmentalists than actually conservationists. And that's one thing that right now has got me puzzled, and I'm kind of like just looking from a distance here and trying to think about all of this and wonder what are some of the motives behind some of these issues and I am for use of the ground, use of the public land, which a lot of times means roads and means access and means ability to get, you know, people in to enjoy these lands. And one thing that is making me nervous about a lot of this politicized stuff is I worry that there is an underlying motive to take these lands and make them where they're inaccessible and, you know, it's great when you're 25 years old and you can hike 14 miles and, you know, go like crazy. But what about when you get to be, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and you can't go like you used to? Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's something, and we'll, we, we probably need to talk about it on another podcast, but it's, I, I'm curious of people's feedback on that. Um, you know, I just, I, I want to ma make sure that, you know, that we're not supporting something that ultimately shuts down our access to these public lands. Well, um, and then, you know, managing these public lands, I know there's a lot of people out there that they want to shut it down and just let it do its natural thing. Well, you've already stated as a wildlife biologist that, you know, wildlife thrive when you do control burns, when you do clear cuts, when you do, you know, when, when, when people that have wildlife in mind do some forest thinning and stuff. But I, I worry that there's, you know, groups out there that want to just shut these lands down. They want to keep them public, which we're all on the same page, but then they want to not do anything with the habitat. They want to just let it go. And I, you can, yeah. you can probably back me up that just letting it go never works. Well, it, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. If we're if we're talking about, it, especially, especially, if we're talking about trying to increase hunter recruit, you know, basically increase hunter recruitment, getting more youth involved, getting more kids involved. Access is key. I mean, it needs a yes. We need our public ground. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. But we have to have access. We have to have access to that public ground. And that type of access needs to be a, a healthy balance because um, you're going to have all sorts of different users and, and people that, that want different experiences. But by the same token, you, I, I know for a fact you are right because I've dealt with them. There are some groups that have, you know, in the name of access and, and in the name of protection, have literally shut down hundreds of thousands of acres of, of forest public land to where now we cannot do habitat improvement projects on them uh, because it's literally spelled out in the forest plan. I mean, it, it, it went through a public process and they, it shut down. It, we can't go and do fire fuels reduction projects. We can't go in and do water improvement. We can't go in and do noxious weed control. We can't go in and there do timber stand improvement stuff. We can't because it possibly could end up creating even a temporary two-track road and nope this has got to be roadless and so you can't go in there and so yeah, now, and i mean in, uh, in the state of arizona we've got our desert bighorn sheep if you take examples like unit 22 our desert bighorn sheep 
our own game and fish department can't even do a helicopter survey in the wilderness area to count the sheep because that you're yep. not allowed to fly in a wilderness area. Yep, so, exactly. I mean, there's issues there that really make me nervous when we really get on this bandwagon, and it's almost like we almost have to take a time out here and say, okay, what are we trying to do? I mean, it, you know, there, there's yeah. a lot more to protecting our public lands, and one of them is being able to manage them. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's the thing right there. I mean, most of the time, um, if, if you end up, getting yourself into, into an echo chamber where all you are listening to are people that sound like you do, you, you're, you get yourself pigeonholed and, and you may not think of ex other things. You, you may not identify the unintended consequences. It means that you've got to have a broader view of things. You've got to have that. That's why having an open public process on a lot of these things is very, so valid. Um, and and before you make a decision on what you want to do, I mean, you've got to look at what are the unintended consequences. If I do A, what's going to pop up, you know, B, C, and D later on? You know, and, and can I account for that? So, Man, I know we've talked about a lot of subjects here. I really appreciate your input uh, on all of them, and it's always great to have you on the podcast. Um, want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can uh, hear more about you, follow you, watch your videos, etc. So, Chris, would you please uh, let them know that? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, no. If you if you're on any social media, mostly Facebook and Instagram for me, it's just Row Hunting Resources. R O E Hunting Resources. We've got the website, the Elk Module, especially. It's a subscription-based. If you want to really, really dive into vocalizations, communication, behavior, and that type of stuff and learn it, that's that's what we do there. Same thing. Super expensive, though. Thousands of dollars to, <laughs> to join, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, still, we're still like, I, I still think we're like 50, 60 bucks. So I, I think, I think it, should, it, should be, it should be manageable, I think. <laughs> but it should be hundreds of dollars, and it's, 50 60 bucks yeah well we'll see i'd rather i'd rather have more people coming to the table than than fewer but um but for the video that you were talking about in the beginning i would i, I would really love to hear other people's feedback on it if you go to our youtube channel again just youtube and just type in row hunting resources roe hunting resources you'll bring up our youtube channel and there's a pile of videos on there but you'll see it it's it's the it's kind of the 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 most latest one, you know, hunting, let me see, what was the stinking name? I can't remember the name of what I titled it as. Okay, so hunting pressured bulls on Colorado public land. It'll be the one that pops right up there. That's the one that you or Jay were talking about to begin with. Again, it's an extended length, so it's an hour long. So I'm, I'm curious to see if people like that. I mean, there's obviously so far some people like it. But, you know, watch it, see what you think. If you like that type of stuff, that's what's on our website. Um, and, and leave a comment. So if, if it is, if it's something that you like, then say that. If it's not, then give me some constructive criticism. If you, you know, say you don't like me talking as much or say you don't like me, you don't like the music in it or whatever. Give me some constructive criticism because, you know, I, we try to make this stuff so it's highly educational, but we also want to make it entertaining for you as well. So get on there, watch it, see what you think, and, and leave me some feedback. Please. <laughs>
Right on, buddy. Well, sounds good. Well, thanks for sharing with us t uh, today, and um, look forward to talking to you again. And, uh, yeah, it's about turkey time, and uh, it's going to be another fun season, and uh, look forward to chatting with you and, and uh, seeing how your turkey season goes. And, and um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I want to remind the listeners, if you're still listening, if you haven't turned us off uh, <laughs> uh, Tuesday, Tuesday, March 20th, uh, I'm actually headed, flying back to Phoenix to do the uh, seminar there for the uh, Christian Hunters of America. Uh, it used to be Desert Christian Archers. Uh, Dar and I typically do that turkey seminar every year. Dar can't make it this year, but I'm going to do the turkey seminar. The doors open at 6. Uh, the seminar starts at 7. Uh, you can go on Christian Hunters of America. They're also uh, raffling off a Gould's turkey hunt down in Mexico with us, uh, either for this year or for 2019. You can buy tickets for $10. Uh, you can actually buy them at the seminar as well. You can buy them online. You don't have to be present to win. Uh, and I would appreciate uh, any, any listeners out there, uh, come to the seminar, uh, look me up, uh, like to always engage in, and uh, meet all of you. So, we're going to have some fun on Tuesday night. That's here here in a day or two, uh, so uh, should be a good time. Chris, thanks for your thanks for uh, your input as always. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on again. And yeah, let's do it soon. Okay, buddy. Take care.